greetings and welcome to Living Without Fear uh, Prophecy Seminar. Um, I appreciate Logan and sharing those basic health principles. We need to be reminded how we can help ourselves to stay healthy during pandemic. And uh, we know that God cares for us and for our health. So we continue our prophecy seminar. And uh, the title for tonight's presentation is Israel's Countdown uh, Fact or Fiction. You know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been a focal point of geopolitical instability in the Middle East since the establishment of Israel in 1948. Although vast majority of the international community, United Nations and United States publicly supported two-state solution trying to end conflict in that area, but uh, peace and stability were never reached in that territory. So in recent few years, several moves were made toward bringing peace and unity to Israel. And uh, even last week, uh, Israel was on the news. Uh, here is the little um, quote from, from the news um, hour, PBS news hour. Uh, Israel and Morocco have agreed to normalize relationship, relations. President Donald Trump announced on Thursday, just last Thursday, a week ago, uh, marking the fourth Arab-Israel agreement in four months. So few events in recent years, like relocating U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, making several moves like this one. Events like this are being uh, interpreted and they're seen by most Christians in America as very significant steps in fulfilling Bible prophecy. Question. Are we missing something? Should we know more about Israel and its role in Bible prophecy? How do we interpret these events in the light of Bible prophecy? Much of the support and energy towards the union and peace between Israel and Palestine comes, don't be surprised, it doesn't come necessarily from a Jewish community, but from Bible-believing Christians who are eager to see Israel restored to one state. You can do your own research and see that the main push for the unity and peace in Israel is not coming from Jewish community, but rather from so-called Zionist movement, um, and largely from evangelical society and evangelical world here in the United States of America. So the question is, why is it important for them? Is there something predicted in the book of Revelation that we should know and should be really watching for the events happening in Israel. So let's begin answering these questions 
from going to the Bible. Now, Bible has promises and more than one promise for Israel to be restored. And for, for the nation of Israel to be brought together, God promised to gather his people again and restore peace. And uh, what are those prophecies are all about? See, uh, God had a plan for Jewish nation, especially when they were in the captivity, they were scattered. God did want to bring them together and to uh, restore the nation. So he gave several promises through prophets, and Jeremiah prophesied, they shall dwell in their own land. Also, Jeremiah prophesied, uh, God prophesied through Jeremiah, I will restore their fortunes. And uh, Jeremiah 7, 7 says, I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers uh, forever. Uh, so those are just a few examples of the promises, and you will find more promises in scriptures regarding uh, bringing Israel back and restoring the nation of Israel. So um, on May 14, 1948, the state of Israel was established for the first time in 2,000 years. And uh, the roots of that movement that brought about that restoration and the establishment goes back to Jewish Zionists in Russian Empire in 19th century. After Bolshevik Revolution, many of the Jews from Russia were moving to Palestine. And then we know there was World War II, of course, and the Holocaust and many other events that are happening in the world which made more Jews uh, uh, come into Palestine and and striving for their independence. And after World War II and the Holocaust in Europe, in uh, 1947, United Nations voted to partition the Palestine. British uh, withdrew on May 14, 1948, and Jews got the possession of about half of the Palestine, and the state of Israel was proclaimed. There was a six-day war with Arabs in 1967. And that was also a very significant event which provided um, more territory for Israel and they were able to um, get, get Jerusalem on that territory. So it was also a significant step in restoring the state of Israel. So today, many Christians are very anxious to see Israel move forward with that, to receive the whole land and to have peace and united state. Why is this important for them? It is important because they believe that as soon as Israel reaches that condition of peace and unity and finally a full possession of the land, they believe that would be, a fulfill, that would be the time to actually usher in the final events of Bible prophecy. They believe that when Israel is restored and united, and the church will be raptured, and God will start his work with Israel, and seven years of tribulation will start, and Antichrist will appear, which will bring about a terrible time of tribulations and, and trouble and so forth, and eventually will be 
leading up to the Battle of Armageddon. And it will be the Battle of Armageddon that will be basically interrupted by the second coming of Jesus. And they believe that that Battle of Armageddon will be taking place in that valley of Megiddo or Jezreel Valley. Um, and so that's why many Christians today are looking at Israel. They're closely uh, watching all the events and things that are happening on the news because they're very anxious to see the fulfillment of those um, uh, expectations that they have for the land of Israel. They're anxious to see these things happening because it will bring just closer the time of rapture of the church, which they believe, and then uh, finally the second coming of Christ. So is this a prophecy that um, we believe and accept and was 1948, the time of the Israel was established as a nation, and the state, is that a fulfillment of the prophecy? What about this teaching about Antichrist appearing in Jerusalem? Now to understand the whole picture, I need to take you to the main schools of, of Bible um, prophecy interpretation. And I would like to suggest that we look at the schools of Bible interpretation and then we will be able to navigate through the maze of um, existing views on Israel and the Bible prophecy. So the first school that um, exists is the school called um, Historical Critical School. Uh, most modern liberal progressive scholars, uh, they follow Historical Critical School of the Bible um, uh, interpretation. Uh, this school, in particular, uh, they um, take the Bible as as historical document, and uh, they believe it contains the Word of God, but it doesn't necessarily um, ease the Word of God as a whole. In other words, the historical critical me method or school places my mind about the Bible to decide what is the Word of God and what is not the Word of God. Historical critical method or school also teaches that God does not necessarily intervene in human history and they deny existence of miracles. They say everything that happened in history can be explained by natural laws, otherwise just a myth or a legend that cannot be taken seriously. For example, historical critical method also uh, places doubt on the authorship of the Bible. For example, they say that you cannot believe actually that Moses wrote five books of the Bible and they have their own um, reasons why they, they make that suggestion. Again, placing criticism and uh, human logic above the scriptures. So that's uh, that's first uh, way of approaching the Bible, and uh, it excludes prophecy and fulfillment of the prophecy as such. So, according to them, Bible has no prophetic element, and God never intervenes. Uh, prophecies to them is just a record of existing events that people could have witnessed, and so forth. The next school is the Preterist school. Preterist school basically believes that. 
all the predictions in the Bible were fulfilled by the end of the first century. They do believe that God can predict the future. The Bible has a prophetic element, but they believe that all the prophecies of the Bible were, were fulfilled by the end of the first century. For example, Orthodox believers from the country where I come from, they, um, uh, they take this school as, as the way to interpret prophecies, and they believe that the teaching of the Bible about Antichrist was fulfilled in the second century BC during the wars of the Maccabees and, and so forth. So they apply it into the past, um, not, in, not in the future or history. Um, there is also a um, Spanish Jesuit uh, by the name of Luis Alcazar. He pointed out that Antichrist was the Nero of Rome, and that's a preterist approach to the Bible prophecies. The next school to approach Bible prophecies is a historicist school. Historicist school takes Bible prophecy and applies it from the time that is written through the history as as God predicts, then uh, history shows the fulfillment of the Bible prophecy. They believe that the history is basically a fulfillment of prophecies, and God is able to predict the future. And many of the prophecies of the Bible, they uh, continue through the history all the way to the second coming of Christ. Um, it also takes into consideration the conditional nature of prophecy. For example, to Israel, if they're not faithful to the covenant, then the prophecies would still be fulfilled in promises, but they would be fulfilled to a larger scale and uh, are not necessarily restricted to ethnical descendants of Abraham. This method was... Uh, widely accepted during the Protestant Reformation, the reformers, they used this, um, this method until there was a, a competitive uh, method that appeared um, and recently became most popular uh, in Christian world. And the, the school that I'm talking about is Futurist School of Interpreting Bible Prophecy. Now, what is Futurist School of Interpreting Bible Prophecy? Uh, a futurist school originated during the Counter-Reformation um, and became most popular in modern Christianity. It was invented by Spanish Jesuit Francisco Ribera. In 1950, he published counter-interpretation um, to basically um, to oppose the interpretation that was suggested by, um, by the Reformers. Reformers, when they studied Little Horn of Daniel and the Beasts of Revelation, they applied uh, the Little Horn um, in history to papacy. The futurist view places all of those um, prophecies in the far future. Um, and in this case, uh, Ribera suggested that Revelation chapter 4 through 20. Second chapter, all the book of Revelation except first few chapters has to do with end time events only. So, um, and he also, he also taught that um, 
that uh, that Antichrist would be just one person appearing at the end of time in Jerusalem that will be a super terrible, like Hitler-like monster that will create havoc in all the world and, uh, and bring about the worst persecution that ever existed in history. So this is the futurist school. We'll talk about it a little later um, in more detail. There is also an idealist school of interpreting Bible prophecy. Now, idealist school of interpreting Bible prophecy is the school that is um, adopted by some of the mega churches that don't want to get into nitty-gritty stuff of details and then they don't, they don't want to argue about doctrine. So idealist approach is basically teaching that ah, you can find some general principles in every prophecy. And so the prophecies and the Bible stories are allegories. It's allegorical, or also it's called a spiritual um, method of approaching and interpreting Scripture. So everything in Scripture has some spiritual lesson, but it doesn't have to be a fulfillment of prophecy in history. So that's an idealist um, approach. Bible should be um, approached and interpreted as allegories with some lessons in them. It, it, it became popular in some of the churches that are called non-denominational churches that don't want to get into any kind of doctrine. So um, idealist school is becoming more popular in our days. Why do we need to know uh, these schools and their methods? Why is it important? It is because, uh, again, many Christians are looking at Israel today. Uh, why there is so much attention to Israel? Why everybody is expecting things to um, fall in place in Israel to see Jesus come um, on the clouds? Well, I just want to ask you to bear with me. I, I, need to, I need to give you this background because without this background, we won't be able to understand where are the roots of the teachings that we find popular today. So I need to introduce to you one more uh, technical term. We, we've seen five technical terms here, and the, the technical term I need to uh, introduce is dispensationalism. I've been your um, living room with your family. You can practice this word, um, dispensationalism. What is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism. See, uh, dispensationalists, they see May 14, 1948, when the state of Israel was pronounced, and then reunification of Jerusalem on June 6, 1967, as a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecies. They are very eager to see Israel united to bring about the rapture of the church and usher in tribulation and second coming of Jesus. So what is the dispensationalism is all about? Dispensationalism originated among Plymouth brothers in England in early uh, 1830s. The father of dispensationalism is John, John Darby. The main concept is that salvation history... Let me see if I can, can draw something for you. So the, the main concept that they believe... Is that, the, uh, is that the history of salvation and the way that God works in history can be divided in dispensations. Uh, 
Those are different economies, different ways that God would be working with uh, the planet Earth and people at different times. For example, there would be dispensation before the flood. There would be dispensation of, of time after the flood. And for Darby, he counted uh, seven of such dispensations. The point is that God has a different program for people at different times. And for different groups of people, God also uses different approach. Some teach that there could be 10 dispensations, some teach could be 12, and some modern ideologist uh, preachers, they teach there are only three dispensations. They teach that there is a dispensation of the law of Moses, then there is dispensation of grace, which is New Testament church, and they also teach that there will be dispensation of millennium. So there are different kind of... Um, uh, of uh, layout, that, if you will, for, for the dispensationalist approach. But um, Darby had seven periods in his dispensation uh, theory. And Darby, he based his views on the fut futurist uh, school of interpreting Bible prophecy. So he adopted a futurist uh, school he developed it into the new teaching of dispensation, telling um, basically that there are different times in history when God works in different ways. And uh, he is the one who separated the church from Israel people, and he is the one who introduced the, the theory about uh, this, uh, the rapture and then um, the Israel being restored and then um, Antichrist appearing in, in Jerusalem and so forth. There are three things that helped um, Darby's view to become most popular in North America today. I believe that his view is really the prevalent view in the United States of America among Christians. There are three things that made it popular. The first thing that was um, there to start uh, promoting his view was Moody Bible Institute movement. It started in Chicago and became a worldwide organization teaching dispensationalism all across the globe. The second thing that helped to promote Darby's view throughout Christianity were they were Bible conferences of early 1900s in Philadelphia and Dallas. And this view would become the uh, main view that is taught in all, not, I shouldn't say all, but in most prominent sem seminaries um, of the evangelical world today in the United States of America. And the third thing that helped um, this view to become very popular was publishing Schofield Reference Bible. Have you heard about Schofield Reference Bible? Schofield Reference Bible is basically teaching uh, seven dispensations, and it, it presents the view of John Darby in detail. And so um, Schofield also put forth dispensational distinction of separation between Israel and the New Testament church. Now, there is one more thing that really made this um, teaching very popular 
And it basically became, it, it became as a norm for many, many, many Christians in America. And the fourth thing that made it so uh, popular that I wanted to mention right now is, was the Left Behind series. At first was printed and sold by millions, and then there was a movie that also teaches dispensationalism and secret rapture and all of the events that would follow after secret rapture in, in Israel. So let's look in detail now at this view and see, then we will see how it compares to the Bible and if it can check, if it can stand the test of the Bible and the Bible truth. So let's, let's look at some main teachings that come with dispensational um, view of the prophecies of Revelation. First, they believe that Jews rejected the Messiah, and since they rejected the Messiah, God had to postpone the promises given to them until the end of time. For them, New Testament church is God's plan B. Because plan A with the Jews didn't work. So when the church is ready for rapture, God will take the church out because they're just plan B. And God will resume his plan with Israel, which is plan A, during the seven last years of earth history, they believe. So God, God according to them, will rapture the church secretly for seven-year marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven, and during that time, he will be working with the Jews. He has different approach to the Jews, so he'll be working with them. And uh, there will be seven years of tribulation because the Antichrist will show himself as a friend of the Jews. He will make a seven-year covenant or agreement with the Jews. And then in the middle of that seven years, he will reveal his true nature and everybody will realize that he was a deception and uh, it will bring about terrible persecutions because he will claim to be God. He'll ask people to worship. Everything we believe about Revelation 13 and uh, Daniel 7, little horn, like I said, futurists, they put it in that last um, period According to them, last seven years and three and a half years would be the terrible um, tribulation that will lead to the Battle of Armageddon. At the Battle of Armageddon, according to them, Jesus descends with the church that were raptured, and everybody crowns him as their king, and they will reign with Jesus for 1,000 years. It will be a so-called promised land and promised reign, that, uh, promised uh, um, prosperity and uh, peace that God has promised to the nation of Israel. At the end of the thousand years, according to them, Satan is destroyed, a new heaven and new earth is built, and Jews and Gentiles are both saved. But listen to this. They remain two distinct groups for eternity, according to dispensationalists. The most tragic part of dispensationalist teaching is that they teach that the, the hardest years 
and persecutions and tragedy for the Jewish people is still waiting for them in the future. And that is really trouble, troubling to me because it, it is based on their understanding that the Jewish nation is cursed, they believe, and they will have to, to bear that terrible time of tribulation. To me, that's, that's a very sad assumption that looks like a hidden form of anti-Semitism. So, how do we compare this teaching with the Bible and where do we go from here? <laughs> Pastor, you, you have given us so much different information about Bibles, uh, about the schools of interpreting the prophecy and about the dispensationalist view of the prophecy. Where do we go from here? Well, the name of our seminar, friends, is Living Without Fear. Amen? And so when we know the Bible and we know the prophecy, it will give us hope. It will give us peace. And it will give us love and respect to God for the ways that He is dealing with human race and the way that He's going to bring about the salvation. And it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. And it looks much better than dispensationalist, dispensationalist view. So what about the promises that we read in the beginning about gathering Israel? Was 1948 a fulfillment? See, the promises that God has given to his people, they involve always restoring a covenant relationship. They, they always involve a, a forming that um, relationship between God and his people. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people. In other words, without inner restoration based on the new covenant within them, Jeremiah 31, 33, and the law written in their hearts, there can be no genuine restoration in the physical sense. Here is the reality. The state of Israel established in 1948 is just a secular state. It's not different from any other country of the world. There was no religious connotation. There was no, there was no element even of the covenant being restored. So to imply that 1948 was, was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy is a big stretch. Yes, every nation deserves to have independency and to have an established state. But in Israel, receiving that independence and, 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 and the state... Um, there was nothing connected with the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. There was no religious aspect here and no reference to worship or, or covenant at all. See, the promises of gathering and restoration, they were specific to Babylonian captivity. No promise or gathering. Uh, here is the point. If you open your Bible and you are interested in the last day events, you will not find one promise of restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem in the New Testament. Not one. 
There is not one promise in book of Revelation that has to do with restoring and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The only temple that is mentioned in the book of Revelation is the temple in heaven. So yes, God will gather his people. He did gather them after, after the Babylonian captivity, but did his plan was fulfilled? Was his plan fulfilled fully? Many of the covenant promises are conditional, my friends. God blessed Abraham, it says, because he obeyed the word. It, it implies that the promises of the covenant, they do not apply across the board just to anyone. God says, I will bless you if you turn to me. His promises are conditional. Many people that say, oh yeah, God is just restoring the nation of Israel. It overlooks the aspect of the principle that we just read. I blessed Abraham, he says, because he obeyed my voice and kept my commandments. This principle implies that the promises of the covenant do not apply automatically regardless human response. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. You see, there is, there is a condition. God is faithful to his promises. He will fulfill his promises. But there is a condition. He doesn't do it just across the board. Now, the other problem with dispensational uh, view is that it teaches that there are different ways of salvation. It teaches that God had one of, way of salvation for the Jews and another way of salvation for the Christians. It teaches that Jews were saved by, the, by keeping the law and now uh, the Christians would be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They also teach that Jews have, have their own Bible, which they call Old Testament, and Christians have their own Bible, which is called New Testament. The, the Jews, they have their God, and he's called God the Father. They dealt with the Father mainly. And Christians in the New Testament, they have a different kind of a God, because God the Father is kind of strict. But Jesus is meek and mild, and he's so nice. So you see what happened in dispensational view? They divorce father and the son. They tear Bible apart in two, two separate codes of laws. Old Testament, New Testament. And they say there was uh, this dispensation and now this dispensation. And God saves people in two different ways throughout the history. Does that agree with the Bible? I read from Acts 4.12, it says, there is no other name by which we can be saved. There is only one name under heaven, and his name is, is Jesus. He is the only way to be saved for both Jews and Gentiles. He is the only Savior. He is the only way. God does not have two programs of salvation, or two economies of salvation, or two, two different ways of salvation. There is only one way. By grace, through faith, trusting 
and believing and accepting the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Dispensationalism created this um, dichotomy in Christianity of two different opposing views. Here are the Jews and here are the Christians. My friends, like I mentioned before, dispensationalism teaches anti-Semitism. By separating Jews in a, in a category with a negative connotation that they have rejected the Messiah. And they even go as far as to say that, yeah, God has rejected them too. Did God reject his people? I read from Romans 11.1. 1. Paul is writing. He says, did God reject his people? What is his answer? By no means. Hmm. We sometimes have a tendency to believe that God replaced Israel with the New Testament church. But that's also not true. So what is true? What is Israel of the New Testament? Paul, in the same chapter, if you read Romans 11, he continues with an illustration. And that illustration is very, very profound. Illustration of an olive tree with natural branches and wild branches. You remember the text. Let's read just one segment of this chapter. Here is Paul. Again, he's saying, if some of the branches, he's talking about natural branches which represent the Jews, right? So he says, if some of the branches have been broken off. Oh, I thought all of them need to be replaced. What does the, what does the text say? If some of the branches have been broken off. Now, friends, we should never forget. We should never forget that when Paul began his ministry, he began from the synagogues. The first audiences that would listen to Paul preach and accept Christ were the Jews. Some did not accept, it, accept him. And some rejected Jesus. So Paul says, some of the branches have been broken off. And you, though a wild olive shoot, who is the wild olive shoot? Those of us who are not ethnical Israel. Those of us who have a rather Gentile background and we come from other nations. We are called a wild olive shoot. You have been grafted in among others. Who are those others? And we are drafted in place of them or among them. You see the text? You have been drafted among others and now you share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. By the way, that root is the salvation in Jesus Christ. That root is the same uh, spiritual nourishment that God has given to his people from the very beginning. It's not, there is no different teaching that Jesus would introduce. It's the teaching of who God is and how he's going to save his people. 
That was the same plane from the very beginning. It was illustrated in sanctuary service and then was revealed in the life of Jesus. So not as few elements in this verse. It says that the natural branches, some of them has been broken off, and then you are a wild olive shoot. You have been grafted among others. Others are, again, natural or ethnic Jews that accepted Jesus, and now you share in the nourishing. So the same root, same economy of salvation, same way of salvation, same promises. Same glory, same future. No two separate programs. So what is the New Testament Israel according to this? The New Testament Israel that God is teaching us through his word is not replacing the Old Testament Israel, but it's rather a community of faith that consists of both Jews and Greeks and, and, uh, um, and Gentiles, you name it, any nation of the, of the world, those who have accepted Christ. And Paul, he would write in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed. And it's to Abraham that God gave all the promises. And heirs according to the promise. My friends, God's promises, they stand. But God doesn't have to separate ethnic Israel because these promises do not apply anymore to ethnic Israel only. But his promises, they belong to all of us, those who accepted Jesus as our personal Savior. The Israel versus church distinction is artificial and arbitrary. It breaks the unity of Scripture and separates Father and the Son, creating two sets of norms, law of Moses and law of grace. If we look at the word Israel, even the word Israel, it was the name of the person. Well, God gave that name to Jacob. We know the story. Forty-three times the word is used in Genesis, and twelve times it refers to the sons of Jacob. So it's a collective term. And then in, in the book of Exodus... Um, in the book of Exodus, the word is used 42 times, and it refers to the nation of Israel, to be re re redeemed from Egypt and rescued from Egypt. And we know that the group of people who were rescued from Egypt was a mixed multitude. But they have followed the Lord, and God calls them, he calls them, his people, his people Israel, Lord's community, those are the terms that are more inclusive now. I like how Jack Dukan, in his book, The Mystery of Israel, describes God's plan throughout history. Here's what he says. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as God of Paul, John, and Peter, has chosen to reveal himself to humanity through history. 
See, we, we cling to historicist approach uh, to Bible prophecy. God is revealing himself through history as one God. The events of creation, the exodus, the giving of this law at Sinai, the return from the exile are examples. In addition, the person of Jesus Christ, his supernatural birth, extraordinary life and resurrection, all carry theological lessons of God's revelation. God works through history, revealing his plan, and he will bring it to completion. And what about this theory of of secret rapture. The term secret rapture is not found in the Bible. Secret rapture is not taught in the Bible. It is the product of Darby's view. It is a product of dispensationalism that wanted to, to separate the church and the Jews, and they want to keep that separation forever. That's why they had to invent rapture. What do we know from the Bible about the second coming of Jesus? Will it be a secret and event and quiet that nobody will see and nobody will hear? What do we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17? For the Lord himself with a shout and the voice of archangel and the trump of God will come from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise first and those who are alive will be taken up to heaven to meet the Lord on the air. And so we will be with the Lord. Some commentators, they say, this is the noisiest text in the Bible. There is nothing secret about it. When Jesus comes, every eye will see him. When Jesus comes, the graves will be opened. When Jesus comes, there will be no, nothing secret about it. We can go into more detail studying those texts. Some texts, they suggest that it will be unexpected. Yes, it will be unexpected for those who are not preparing for the second coming of Jesus. It will be unexpected. unexpected. But the manner of his coming will be visible, will be audible, will be uh, glorious. What a day that will be. Another problem with Dispensational theory that we can, we can mention has to do with, let me see, it has to do with the gap theory. What is the gap theory, Pastor? See, in order to place the events with Antichrist into the very end of the history, they had to take one week. See, God, God gave the prophecy about his, his people and nation of Israel, and he said that they will be, they'll be given time of 480 year, 490 years or 70 weeks, 70 times 7. And we know from the, from the study of the prophecy that that period would be completed in A.D. 34. Let me see. Um, how do I fix it? 34. Not very good. Looks like some people walking there with a the dog. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Let me just do, do this and put 34 next to it. So then, <clears throat> then we have this last week of, of, of the prophecy. 
And the last week, uh, the last week starts with AD 27. And in the middle of the week at AD 31, Jesus was crucified. And you can read more about it in Daniel 9, 26, and 27. It describes the death of the Messiah. And by the way, this is the forbidden prophecy for any Jew to read. They say if somebody wants to read and calculate that prophecy, he will receive all kinds of curses. Um, in some circles, it's forbidden prophecy. Why? Well, because it points out the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, and there is no other Messiah that would fulfill that prophecy. What dispensationalists do, they take this one last week and they throw it into some future seven years with, uh, with the point of three and a half years in the middle. And this is when they say the Antichrist appears. So what did they do to one piece prophecy of 490 years that was given by God for his people? They take this seven years and they detach it from the prophecy and they throw it all the way into the future, which creates a big problem. Then the prophecy of 490 years becomes almost like longer than, it becomes longer than 2,500 years or so. This has no foundation in Scripture to take the events that were part of the 490 years and throw them into the far future, creating a gap here that no Bible text can support. Now, there is one text that they use a lot to, again, defend this theory about Antichrist appearing in Jerusalem. Let me, let me go to that text. It's found in, in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 4. Here's what they say, that this text is pointing to the Antichrist that will sit in Jerusalem's temple at the end of time. It says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called of God. It talks about the, the Antichrist in the context. Oh, the son of, son of perdition, the man of sin, that he is worshipped and that he sits as God, where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So what dispensationalists do, they take this text and build the whole history of these seven years in just one biblical text like this. How would you imagine a person sitting in a Jewish temple? Other chairs, benches. The only way you can apply this text to Jewish temple is when you don't have or you decided to be totally oblivious to the way that the temple was built. The only way you can apply this text to the temple of God or the temple that God has built or the God uh, told Moses to build and, and then Solomon built the temple. Uh, 
The only way you can apply it if you imagine that instead of the temple, there is a cathedral like in Middle Ages with big chairs by the, by the back wall, and there in the chair there is a, a person sitting. Well, first of all, there was no people sitting in the sanctuary. There were no chairs. Especially in the most holy place, uh, only the high priest would enter the most holy place once a year. And only for a few minutes. And he would come out. He would complete his work and come out. There were no chairs to sit. But many people imagined that there will be a temple built just like a mid medieval cathedral with chairs and everything, and the Antichrist would sit in that chair. If temple would be rebuilt like a Jewish temple, there would be no person sitting there. The other problem with this um, approach is that they believe that Antichrist is one person. If you read letters of John, he says that Antichrist, that his spirit already is working, and he's writing in the first century. And then he goes on to say that many Antichrists already appeared in, in plural. He says, Antichrist already here. Then when we read the book of um, Daniel chapter 7, about little horn, and Revelation 13, it teaches that Antichrist will be ruling for 1260 years. Why do I bring this up? Because the Bible does not teach that Antichrist is one person. One person cannot last 1260 years. Antichrist, according to the Bible, is the system that denies Christ and places itself in the place of Christ, demanding worship. So when we understand this text in the context of all the scripture, <clears throat> it makes sense that it doesn't talk about, about the literal temple in Jerusalem because nobody's sitting in the literal temple in Jerusalem, even if it's rebuilt, unless it's rebuilt by a different plan. An antichrist is not the person. It's not a specific person. It's not a terrible monster that appears in Jerusalem before the end of time. Antichrist is the system, it's ideology, it's a religion that places itself in place of God and has characteristics that are described in Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7. So friends, um, Today we, we covered many different items in history. This is the topic that demands much more time to study in depth. But it's fascinating to see how many people are wandering after Jerusalem and they're wandering after the events in Jerusalem, missing the point. The point that we are living and at the end and in the time of the end. When Jesus is ministering in heavenly sanctuary, he is our high priest, he is our Lord, he is our Messiah, 
He has only one way of salvation. And he welcomes all the people, Jews and Gentiles, to come to him and to accept him, to confess our sins and to follow him because he is the Savior of the world. And when he comes, there will be no second chance. See, dispensationalism teaches that if you have not made your decision today, don't worry about it. The church will be raptured. It will be more difficult. Yeah, there will be tribulations and stuff. But you will still be able to, to be saved because you will see that things are really getting bad and church is gone and raptured. There will be second chance. My friend, it's a deception. God's word says today is the day of salvation. Today, while Jesus is ministering in heavenly sanctuary, today is the time to trust in him. Today is the time to follow him. Today is the time to confess our sins and choose Christ. We are living in a time when signs are being fulfilled. Signs of Matthew 24 and Jesus <clears throat> is coming soon. Will you choose him today? He chose you when he died on the cross. He chose you and he accepted you into his family if you have come to him. I hope that you do not postpone that time in your life. I pray and hope that you use the opportunities that God has given today. That's the way we can have peace. That's the way we can go through the times. Times when things will get harder. It will be harder to worship God. It will be harder to follow God. It will be harder to preach the message about God. Things will get harder. But God will see us through. Because we will be part of His Israel. His people. And His promises will be fulfilled for you and me. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. People for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a privilege for us to be his chosen race today, to be his chosen people, and to know that he is coming soon to take us home. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises that you have given us in your word. Thank you for helping us to understand the situation with Israel. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to follow the leading of your word. Help us to use the time wisely to come to the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, Jesus Christ to confess our sins, to accept him, and to be part of that new Israel, the Israel that Jesus is coming to take home. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for 
giving us peace and confidence that we can have during these times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.